This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Police Operation by H. Beam Piper. Part 3 The grass was wet as Verkan Vall reminded himself that here he was called Richard Lee, crossed the yard from the farmhouse to the ramshackle barn in the early autumn darkness. It had been raining that morning when the strato-rocket from Durgabar had landed him at the Hegraban Synthetic Works on the first level. Unaffected by the probabilities of human history, the same rain had been coming down on the old Kinchwalter farm, near Rudder's Fort, on the fourth level and it had persisted all day in a slow, deliberate drizzle. He didn't like that. The woods would be wet, muffling his quarry's footsteps, and cancelling his only advantage over the night prowler he hunted. He had no idea, however, of postponing the hunt. If anything, the rain had made it all the more imperative that the night hound be killed at once. At this season, a falling temperature would speedily follow. The night-hound, a creature of the hot Venus marshes, would suffer from the cold, and, taught by years of domestication to find warmth among human habitations, it would invade some isolated farmhouse, or worse, one of the little valley villages. If it were not killed to-night, the incident he had come to prevent would certainly occur. Going to the barn, he spread an old horse-blanket on the seat of the jeep, laid his rifle on it, and then backed the jeep outside. Then he took off his coat, removing his pipe and tobacco from the pockets, and spread it on the wet grass. He unwrapped a package and took out a small plastic spray-gun he had brought with him from the first level, aiming it at the coat and pressing the trigger until it blew itself empty. A sickening, rancid fetter tainted the air. The scent of the giant poison roach of Venus, the one creature for which the night-hound bore an inborn, implacable hatred. It was because of this compulsive urge to attack and kill the deadly poison roach that the first human settlers on Venus, long millennia ago, had domesticated the ugly and savage night-hound. He remembered that the Gavron family derived their title from their vast Venus hotlands estates. That Gavron Sarn, the man who had brought this thing to the fourth level, had been born on the inner planet. When Verkenval donned that coat, he would become his own living bait for the murderous fury of the creature he sought. At that moment, mastering his queasiness and putting on the coat, he objected less to that danger than to the hideous stench of the scent, to obtain which a valuable specimen had been sacrificed at the Durgabar Museum of Extraterrestrial Zoology the evening before. Carrying the wrapper and the spray-gun to an outside fireplace, he snapped his lighter to them and tossed them in. They were highly inflammable, blazing up and vanishing in a moment. He tested the electric headlamp on the front of his cap, 
checked his rifle, drew the heavy revolver, an authentic product of his line of operation, and flipped the cylinder out and in again. Then he got into the jeep and drove away. For half an hour he drove quickly along the valley roads. Now and then he passed farmhouses and dogs, puzzled and angered by the alien scent his coat bore, barked furiously. At length he turned into a back road, and from this to the barely discernible trace of an old log road. The rain had stopped, and in order to be ready to fire in any direction at any time, he had removed the top of the jeep. Now he had to crouch below the windshield to avoid overhanging branches. Once three deer, a buck and two does, stopped in front of him and stared for a moment, then bounded away in a flutter of white tails. He was driving slowly now, laying behind him a reeking trail of scent. There had been another stock-killing the night before, while he had been on the first level. The locality of the latest depredation had confirmed his estimate of the beast's probable movements, and indicated where it might be prowling tonight. He was certain that it was somewhere near. Sooner or later it would pick up the scent. Finally he stopped, snapping out his lights. He had chosen this spot carefully, while studying the geological survey map that afternoon. He was on the grade of an old railroad line, now abandoned and its track long removed, which had served the logging operations of fifty years ago. On one side the mountain slanted sharply upward, on the other it fell away sharply. If the night-hound were below him, it would have to climb that forty-five-degree slope, and could not avoid dislodging loose stones or otherwise making a noise. He would get out on that side. If the night-hound were above him, the jeep would protect him when it charged. He got to the ground, thumbing off the safety of his rifle. And an instant later, he knew that he had made a mistake which could easily cost him his life. A mistake from which neither his comprehensive logic nor his hypnotically acquired knowledge of the beast's habits had saved him. As he stepped to the ground, facing toward the front of the jeep, he heard a low, whining cry behind him, and a rush of padded feet. He whirled, snapping on the headlamp with his left hand, and thrusting out his rifle pistol-wise in his right. For a split second he saw the charging animal its long, lizard-like head split in a toothy grin, its talon-tipped forepaws extended. He fired, and the bullet went wild. The next instant the rifle was knocked from his hand. Instinctively he flung up his left arm to shield his eyes. Claws raked his left arm and shoulder. Something struck him heavily along the left side, and his cap-light went out as he dropped and rolled under the jeep drawing in his legs and fumbling under his coat for the revolver. In that instant he knew what had gone wrong. His plan had been entirely too much of a success. The night-hound had winded him as he had driven up the old railroad grade and had followed. Its best running speed had been just good enough to keep it a hundred or so feet behind the jeep, and the motor noise had covered the padding of its feet. 
In the few moments between stopping the little car and getting out, the night-hound had been able to close the distance and spring upon him. It was characteristic of first-level mentality that Verkan Vall wasted no moments on self-reproach or panic. While he was still rolling under his jeep, his mind had been busy with plans to retrieve the situation. Something touched the heel of one boot, and he froze his leg into immobility, at the same time trying to get the big Smith and Wesson free. The shoulder holster, he found, was badly torn, though made of the heaviest skirting leather, and the spring which retained the weapon in place had been wrenched and bent until he needed both hands to draw. The eight-inch slashing claw of the nighthound's right intermediary limb had raked him. Only the instinctive motion of throwing up his arm, and the fact that he wore the revolver in a shoulder holster, had saved his life. The nighthound was prowling around the jeep, whining frantically. It was badly confused. It could see quite well, even in the close darkness of the starless night. Its eyes were of a nature capable of perceiving infrared radiations as light. There were plenty of these. The jeep's engine, lately running on four-wheel drive, was quite hot. Had he been standing alone, especially on this raw, chilly night, Verkan Vall's own body heat would have lighted him up like a jack-o'-lantern. Now, however, the hot engine above him masked his own radiations. Moreover, the poison roach scent on his coat was coming up through the floorboard and mingling with the scent on the seat. Yet the nighthound couldn't find the two-and-a-half-foot insect-like thing that should have been producing it. Verkan Vall lay motionless, wondering how long the next move would be in coming. Then he heard a thud above him, followed by a furious tearing as the nighthound ripped the blanket and began rending at the seat cushion. Hope it gets a paw full of seat springs, Verkan Vall commented mentally. He had already found a stone about the size of his two fists, and another slightly smaller, and had put one in each of the side pockets of the coat. Now he slipped his revolver into his waist belt and writhed out of the coat, shedding the ruined shoulder holster at the same time. Wriggling on the flat of his back, he squirmed between the rear wheels until he was able to sit up behind the jeep. Then, swinging the weighted coat, he flung it forward over the nighthound and the jeep itself, at the same time drawing his revolver. Immediately, the nighthound, lured by the sudden movement of the principal source of the scent, jumped out of the jeep and bounded after the coat, and there was considerable noise in the brush on the lower side of the railroad grade. At once, Verkenval swarmed into the jeep and snapped on the lights. His stratagem had succeeded beautifully. The stinking coat had landed on the top of a small bush, about ten feet in front of the jeep and ten feet from the ground. The nighthound, erect on its haunches, was reaching out with its front paws to drag it down and slashing angrily at it with its single-clawed intermediary limbs. Its back was to Verkan Vall. His sights clearly defined by the lights in front of him, the paratimer centered them on the base of the creature's spine, just above its secondary shoulders, and carefully squeezed the trigger. 
The big three fifty seven Magnum bucked in his hand and belched flame and sound. If only these fourth-level weapons weren't so confoundedly boisterous. And the nighthound screamed and fell. Recocking the revolver, Verkan Vall waited for an instant, then nodded in satisfaction. The beast's spine had been smashed, and its hindquarters and even its intermediary fighting limbs had been paralyzed. He aimed carefully for a second shot and fired into the base of the thing's skull. It quivered and died. Getting a flashlight, he found his rifle, sticking muzzle down in the mud a little behind and to the right of the jeep, and swore briefly in the local fourth-level idiom. For Verkenval was a man who loved good weapons, be they sigma-ray needlers, neutron disruption blasters, or the solid missile projectors of the lower levels. By this time, he was feeling considerable pain from the claw wounds he had received. He peeled off his shirt and tossed it over the hood of the jeep. Tortha Karf had advised him to carry a needler, or a blaster, or a neurostat gun, but Verkenval had been unwilling to take such arms onto the fourth level. In event of mishap to himself, it would be all too easy for such a weapon to fall into the hands of someone able to deduce from it scientific principles too far in advance for the general fourth-level culture. But there had been one first-level item which he had permitted himself, mainly because, suitably packaged, it was not readily identified as such. Digging a respectable fourth-level leatherette case from under the seat, he opened it and took out a pint bottle with a red poison label and a towel. Saturating the towel with the contents of the bottle, he rubbed every inch of his torso with it, so as not to miss even the smallest break made in his skin by the septic claws of the nighthound. Whenever the lotion-soaked towel touched raw skin, a pain like the burn of a hot iron shot through him. Before he was through, he was in agony. Satisfied that he had disinfected every wound, he dropped the towel and clung weakly to the side of the jeep. He grunted out a string of English oaths, and capped them with an obscene Spanish blasphemy he had picked up among the fourth-level inhabitants of his island home of Neros to the south, and a thundering curse in the name of Maga, fire-god of Duel, in a third-level tongue. He even mentioned Fasif, great god of Kift, in a manner which would have gotten him an acid bath if the Kiftan priests had heard him. He alluded to the Baroque amatory practices of the third-level Ilyala people, and soothed himself in the classic Darhelma tongue with one of those rambling genealogical insults favored in the Indo-Turanian sector of the fourth level. By this time, the pain had subsided to an overall smarting itch. He'd have to bear with that until his work was finished and he could enjoy a hot bath. He got another bottle out of the first aid kit, a flat pint labeled Old Overholt, containing a locally manufactured specific for inward and subjective wounds, and medicated himself copiously from it corking it and slipping it into his hip pocket against future need. He gathered up the ruined shoulder holster and threw it under the back seat. He put on his shirt. 
Then he went and dragged the dead nighthound onto the grade by its stumpy tail. It was an ugly thing, weighing close to two hundred pounds, with powerfully muscled hind legs which furnished the bulk of its motive power, and sturdy three-clawed front legs. Its secondary limbs, about a third of the way back from its front shoulders, were long and slender. Normally they were carried folded closely against the body, and each was armed with a single curving claw. The revolver bullet had gone in at the base of the skull and emerged under the jaw. The head was relatively undamaged. Verkan Vall was glad of that. He wanted that head for the trophy room of his home on Neros. Grunting and straining, he got the thing into the back of the jeep, and flung his almost shredded tweed coat over it. A last look around assured him that he'd left nothing unaccountable or suspicious. The brush was broken where the nighthound had been tearing at the coat. A bear might have done that. There were splashes of the viscid stuff the thing had used for blood, but they wouldn't be there long. Terrestrial rodents liked nighthound blood, and the woods were full of mice. He climbed in under the wheel, backed, turned, and drove away. Inside the Paratime Transposition Dome, Verkan Vall turned from the body of the nighthound, which he had just dragged in, and considered the inert form of another animal, a stump-tailed, tuft-eared, tawny Canada lynx. That particular animal had already made two Paratime Transpositions. Captured in the vast wildlands of fifth-level North America, it had been taken to the first level and placed in the Durgabar Zoological Gardens and then, requisitioned on authority of Tortha Karf, it had been brought to the fourth level by Verkan Vall. It was almost at the end of all its travels. Verkan Vall prodded the supine animal with the toe of his boot. It twitched slightly. Its feet were cross-bound with straps, but when he saw that the narcotic was wearing off, Verkan Vall snatched a syringe, parted the fur at the base of its neck, and gave it an injection. After a moment, he picked it up in his arms and carried it out to the jeep. "'All right, pussycat,' he said, placing it under the rear seat. "'This is a one-way ride. The way you're doped up, it won't hurt a bit.' He went back and rummaged in the debris of the long-deserted barn. He picked up a hoe and discarded it as too light. An old plowshare was too unhandy. He considered a grate bar from a heating furnace, and then he found the pole-axe, lying among a pile of worm-eaten boards. Its handle had been shortened at some time to about twelve inches, converting it into a heavy hatchet. He weighed it and tried it on a block of wood, and then, making sure that the secret door was closed, he went out again and drove off. An hour later he returned. Opening the secret door, he carried the ruined shoulder holster and the straps that had bound the bobcat's feet and the axe, now splotched with blood and tawny cat hairs, into the dome. Then he closed the secret room and took a long drink from the bottle on his hip. The job was done. He would take a hot bath and sleep in the farmhouse till noon, and then he would return to the first level. 
Maybe Tortha Karf would want him to come back here for a while. The situation on this timeline was far from satisfactory, even if the crisis threatened by Gavran Sarn's renegade pet had been averted. The presence of a chief's assistant might be desirable. At least he had a right to expect a short vacation. He thought of the little redhead at the Hagraban Synthetics Works. What was her name? Something Kara. Morvan Kara, that was it. She'd be coming off shift about the time he'd make first level tomorrow afternoon. The claw wounds were still smarting vexatiously. A hot bath and a night's sleep. He took another drink, lit his pipe, picked up his rifle and started across the yard to the house. Private Zinkowski cradled the telephone and got up from the desk, stretching. He left the orderly room and walked across the hall to the recreation room, where the rest of the boys were loafing. Sergeant Haynes, in a languid gin-rummy game with Corporal Connor, a sheriff's deputy, and a mechanic from the service station down the road, looked up. "'Well, Sarge, I think we can write off those stock killings,' the private said. "'Yeah?' the sergeant's interest quickened. "'Yeah. I think the Watsits had it. I just got a buzz from the railroad cops at Logansport. It seems a track-walker found a dead bobcat on the Logan River Ranch, about a mile or so below MMY Signal Tower. Looks like it tangled with that night freight upriver, and came off second best. It was near chopped to hamburger. MMY Signal Tower. That's right below Yoder's Crossing, the sergeant considered. The Strawmeyer farm night before last, the Amrine farm last night? Yeah, that would be about right. That'll suit Steve Parker. Bobcats aren't protected, so it's not his trouble. And they're not a violation of state law, so it's none of our worry, Connor said. Your deal, isn't it, Sarge? Yeah. Wait a minute. The sergeant got to his feet. I promised Sam Kane, the AP man at Logansport, that I'd let him in on anything new. He got up and started for the phone. Phantom killer! He blew an impolite noise. Well, it was just a lot of excitement while it lasted, the deputy sheriff said. Just like that flying saucer thing. The End of Police Operation by H. Beam Piper. Read by Mark Nelson. This recording is in the public domain.